Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another installment of the AAMFT podcast. Dr. Eli Karam, happy to be back with you where we relate, innovate, and educate one episode at a time. And we have a great one for you today. Before I tell you about our guest, got to tell you about AAMFT 19. That's the annual conference that is rapidly approaching August 29th through September 1st. AAMFT always has a lot to offer, um, whether you go every year or you've never been. In Austin, Texas, certainly a first-class city. Uh, on recent episodes, I've been telling you about many of the 27 CEUs that you could get. Um, let me also just focus on these networking professional development events. On Thursday the 29th, there is an Emerging Professionals Networking ses- Session, which is perfect if you are new to AMFT and you've never been to a conference, this hooks other preclinical fellows and pre-allied mental health professionals up together. There's also a family team reception if you have been involved in the family team, which is AAMFT's main wing of advocacy Thursday afternoon. Um, there will be a family team advocacy program for members interested in advocacy. So whether you're part of the team or you'd like to join, it's a great place to come. And something I will certainly be at is the Topical Interest Networks Meetup. And these are all free events, by the way. You will see the major Topical Interest Networks there with their leadership and will be a firsthand look at what the benefits of joining these interest networks are. We'll also, in months to come, be focusing on each one of those on the podcast in some way. We hope you'll join us at AAMFT19. I will certainly be there uh, we'll be recording some podcasts. I'll be presenting with my colleague, Adrian Blow, um, but it is one of my favorite times of year uh, at the annual conference. Okay, on to today's guest, Dr. Manage Danishpour. I first had the chance to meet Manage uh, at a 2016 AAMFT conference, by the way, where she gave a very powerful keynote. And I think anybody chosen to give a keynote has a message to relay and can do it in a passionate way. So you'll certainly hear that today as she tells powerful stories about her own family of origin and work with her clients as it pertains to multiculturalism and cultural diversity. Manage Danishpour is the system-wide director and professor of marriage and family therapy at the Department of Couple and Family Therapy at Alliant International University in Irvine, California. She's an LMFT with over 20 years of academic research and clinical experience. She received her doctorate in MFT from the University of Minnesota. She is originally from Iran and identifies herself as a third-wave feminist, and she'll tell you exactly what that means in the interview. Her areas of research uh, and all of her national presentations are centered around issues of multiculturalism, social justice, Uh, and premarital and marital relationships with Muslim family dynamics. She has studied Muslim families, not as a religious group, but as individual members of family units and a distinct group within their own societal context. Uh, Most recently, she's put all that together in her very powerful book, Family Therapy with Muslims, using classic and contemporary family therapy theories in working with Muslim family systems cross-culturally. This has been one of my favorite interviews to do, and whether you have an interest in multiculturalism or not, I think you will learn a lot 
from Manager, her background and her powerful stories. I will check back with you after the interview. All right, Manager, welcome to the AMFT podcast. And I have been wanting to talk to you for a while. And one of the issues important to our field and, and for young professionals and old listening to this is the idea of cultural competence. And we're going to talk a lot about this on this episode today. But the first question I always ask all of our guests, because it's very important, people want to learn the person behind the approach or the content area they're talking about. So tell us about your cultural background and your family of origin story, if you will. And then we'll talk about how you got interested in MFT as a profession. I'm originally from Iran. Iran, sometimes people call it. Um, I am from a family with four children. I'm the third one. Um, My father uh, passed away two months ago, but he was a uh, philosopher. He was a university professor. He taught for 48 years. And um, How old were you when you moved to this country? I came here when I was in my early 20s. And... um, we are three uh, a female and one male, have one brother. And my father believed that gender is a social construct. Um, and so for my, um, he owned several uh, private schools. So he decided to have me go to all boys school when I started kindergarten. So from kindergarten to sixth grade, I was the only female student in all male school. Wow. How, how did you feel about that? Great. I think it has helped me tremendously. I, I don't think he had any idea how it would shape me in the future. At the time, I think I was a guinea pig in his studies of what happens when we put people in different contexts and how they behave. Um, but for me, um, as I became older and my, my journey in life, it has been the best thing that happened to me. Um, but of course, at the time, they were, they were challenges because when I started uh, middle school, I had no idea how females' um, relationships are so complicated. Because um, you had brothers, you said, right? And I had one yeah. brother. One brother and two. Did the other sisters go to, this, to the same school? They went to um, my dad's school. But my, younger do- my younger sister, eight years younger than I, um, she didn't because at that time we didn't have those schools. And um, my uh, brother, actually, when he was in second grade, um, he wasn't doing well. My dad said, why are you, you know, paying attention? And he said, I know it all. He said, do you want to take the sixth grade exam? And he said, yes. So he took it, and, and then he was all over the newspaper and, you know, news headlines because he was eight years old, and so uh, and he had a sixth grade, basically, degree. And so he graduated from high school when he was 14 and moved to Italy um, to study um, architecture. So he became an architect at the, at the age of 21. So he um, actually left when I, he's five years older than I, when I started um, becoming a little older and in, in kind of understanding those parts of gender dynamics. Um, and so... How were you treated by those? And you talk about middle school, high school can be rough. Uh, and even if gender is um, a social construct, how did the boys treat you in school? Um, my dad was the school principal, so it was complicated. No, at the same time, though, I, I mean, years later, now that I am a clinician, um, I work way better with guys, and I've um, been actually doing workshops on how to work with men for years. I get their stories. I connect with them much better. Um, but at the time, their, their pure honesty. I remember I was in the um, uh, you know, uh, physical education class, and the coach had to put me in one team. Uh, they were playing soccer. One team one week and another team uh, the, the, the week after to just kind of balance 
the field and they will go to him in front of me and say, can you please put her in the other team this week because she's really bad. They used to try to pay each other and say, can you take her this week because we don't want her in our team because she doesn't play well. And I will hear, I was part of you know, yeah, listening to this. Absolutely. And then I came to socialize with females and all my cousins were male as, as, as well. And so it, it was those, those networking and people kind of saying they like you, but then behind your back saying they don't. It was, middle school was very um, difficult for me in terms of fitting in. I mean, obviously your, this story is important to who you became in your work, but how did that impact your own um, sense of your gender identity growing up with, in this male-dominated culture in an all-boys school? I, I believe, um, of course, I am looking at this, this whole journey when I'm 54. So at the time, um, there, there were challenges, but at the same time, um, the, the family environment was so strong, and we didn't look at our father as a, um, a that, that he is, it's an, an emotional relationship. We looked up to him as a mentor, as a guide, as someone who will support you no matter what. And so anything that happened in our social um, circles with friends, with relatives, um, we had conversations, dinner table conversations about them. And so I always felt supported in, in looking back, um, never felt lonely in my experiences because we had book clubs growing up uh, with my mom and dad, and we would talk about different things, and they were always a place to come back and process um, relationships outside. And, and, and my dad used to say that, you know, no matter what happened, no matter what we brought home and said, this is difficult, he would say, that's okay, it will make you stronger. Um, you need to have rough and tough experiences. And I feel like listening to you, to you, you bought into that mentality very early on. Uh, right? Very much. Because you, you Yes, and you can't survive, much less thrive in an environment like that unless you do. All right, so how did you, um, how'd you find out about MFT? Because I'm pretty sure that was not going on uh, uh, in Iran during your, your, no, no. your formative years. I actually um, came here, and my dad believed that because gender is a social construct, men and women will not have equality until women are highly educated and economically independent. And so we were talking about boys and love and those kind of things. He said, all those things can happen after you find yourself and you're highly professional and economically independent. And so uh, I believe that we gotta get into science fields because he believed that, that Eastern cultures are um, infatuated with um, and, uh, philosophy and social sciences and West has been able to advance because of they got into hard sciences. So he believed in uh, for all of us and because he was a philosopher himself, I think part of it was his own projections of, I didn't have guidance. He always said that. He said, no one told me. I want more for my kids exactly, than I had. Exactly, yes. exactly. Yes. So I came here to do science, hard science, and then I took a child development course, and, and I always say, I don't know if I found where, where were you at the time? I was in Utah. Okay, in Utah. Undergrad, Utah. Way, way uh, different culturally going from oh, Iran to Utah. I, mean, I no idea. Wow. I no idea. So you had no idea where, I mean, you were, you were obviously... Uh, smart and your father's educated but that talk about a, a culture shift absolutely wow and the, the the part that was interesting in utah is that they are so um into uh they have their own collectivistic cultures as as a fate and they would like others to become part of their fate that they were so inviting and open that i actually didn't feel um a cultural shock until I actually started my doctoral program at University of Minnesota. Um, and, and so I did my undergrad in child development. I went to Iran during Iran-Iraq war because my teacher asked me to look into daycare centers and see what happens when sirens are going and bombs are happening. And so I um, went what to year, What year are we talking about? We're talking about the 80s? What 86. Okay. 
Um, and so I went back to Iran and um, did this study or at least talk to kids that they were only survivors of war and uh, listen to their stories. But I was a child development major. I had no clinical background. And I felt that as these kids were telling their stories, I'm just gathering data um, as opposed to doing something about their pain. So I did my grad um, program in family ecology also at University of Utah. And during that time, our program director was talking about marriage and family therapy, systemic lens, and it was a family ecology program based on Bronfenbrenner's model. And so that interactional, contextual um, perspective really got me interested. And so I came to University of Minnesota for my doctoral class. And then when I came to Minnesota, they um, started asking questions about, oh, you're a female, you're Muslim, you're from Iran, you're an international student, um, in, in, in a very connecting, caring way. But it made me question for the first time in my life um, I don't know what I'm getting myself into. I want to become a healer. I want to become a helper. Um, I went against my father's wishes of doing science. Because uh, you knew you had a very strong research background at that point, but there was a part of you that wanted to do applied clinical work as yeah, well. Yeah, but, but to my to my father, um, uh, it still was social sciences. And he no, said, it was soft. He, soft. he wanted he hard. At the end, your numbers are going to be valid. Well. You, you sound like you had such a good relationship. But was that was that challenging for you to go against his wishes at that point as, as a young woman or no? Um, it, it, we had many conversations about that. I said I fit in. It seems like I have found my niche. In, in his um, very guiding, mentoring um, um, perspective, he said, at least stay with the research um, side of your field, and hopefully when you graduate, you decide to become a psychiatrist. <laughs> so you go more toward that. And, and so um, we joked about it, but later on when I was doing my doctoral um, research, I actually went back to Iran and, and um, used, used David Olson's circumplex model to work with couples, and um, I, he actually got to read all the questionnaires, and he said, no, no, I can see science. Um, this is good. It seems like you are doing well. So this is, we're going to talk about cultural competence today. Why don't you define that first and, and how you how you view it and how the MFT field should view it. So when I first came here, there was no conversations about cultural competency. We had no classes at the at the universe, any of the universities about that. It was just this universal perspective. We learned about family conceptual frameworks, all the sociological models and MFT models. And then when I graduated and got my um, <clears throat> doctorate, actually University of Minnesota hired me to teach the um, diversity class at the university. And when I, um, the first time I taught it, I thought the only reason I'm teaching this class is because I have an accent and I'm from another country and I'm not equipped. I only know from my own, my, I only know my own perspective and my own story about my culture which is different from my husband is from the same culture but if you talk to him about his culture he will give you a very different perspective um, based on his own experiences so that first semester i thought there is there should be more into this cultural competency what am i doing i'm only one person with one perspective so i had to read a lot a lot a lot to get more and more information from other disciplines, because MFT didn't have it. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, more anthropological perspectives to begin with. Um, uh, and, and then um, Paul Rosenblatt, uh, Professor Dr. Rosenblatt, was a professor and was on sabbatical. Actually, that's how I ended up. You, you took his class. Took take, take his class, and he gave me some information about human rights and human rights violations. And so I took that in. And, and so for the past 22 years, 
I have been teaching multicultural classes and incorporating multicultural perspectives into my courses, but it has been an evolving process. You know, Carl Whitaker talks about 40 years of trying and failing, and, and I believe in, I'm in my 22nd year of trying and failing and learning from every conversation with uh, students, colleagues, um, in workshops. I read my evaluation so carefully to see what is it that other people are saying. Not you were fantastic, but I really didn't like what you talked about because that part is very important to me and I learned from it a lot. Um, you know, we many people who listen to this podcast will be students or emerging professionals, but some more experienced people. If you go back to your history books, your your original family therapy models, your your structural, strategic, your behavioral based models were very patriarchal, uh, very uh, gendered. Um, you know, mother bashing, uh, um, and that led gave rise to the feminist critique in the '80s. And you call yourself a third wave feminist. Uh, define what that means and talk about your uh, coming from another country, learning these models, what your initial reaction was to them, these classic models. So again, becoming a third wave feminist was an evolving process because first wave feminists um, were talking about um, laws, property laws, voting rights, those kind of things, legal, absolutely. And then um, we had uh, people, more people actually joined, women of color joined and started talking about different conversations about work and um, and equalities in the way that we get treated in different social contexts. And then third wave feminists um, started talking about the intersectionalities of our identities, that how we define feminism is based on what we do and how we perceive ourselves within that conversation Um, and so it really attracted me in terms of that's how I can find myself and I can have a voice Um, in terms of family therapy models um, I when I talk about them in my classes I'm very classic in terms of use of family therapy models and I make uh, Mnuchin and Bowen look such good feminists (laughs) Um, because of what I bring, and sometimes I say they are turning into their graves and saying, I never said that. Um, because I think that, that at, at their time, and as they were going through um, the process of developing these theories, the, their, their context, I'm an ecologist because yeah. of my background. Right, their historical and cultural historical context was different, right? right? They didn't have that. So what I do, every time I'm covering a model, then I have a limitation for it, and then I talk about, um, they didn't talk about gender, they didn't talk about power. Um, That means that they weren't exposed to it, they were talking about universal models, they were the mavericks, they were the ones that started the conversations, and it is our responsibility to use the structural model, Bowenian models, um, strategic models, and, and actually create a lens of um, looking at it from the feminist perspective. Yes. Uh, how has the field changed as it pertains to cultural awareness since you entered it? And do you think we've progressed? And if we have, what is our next level of work we still need to do? We have not made that much progress because our institutional um, uh, um, context haven't changed. Uh, it's still pretty traditional. Um, white male property owner model of uh, is based on money, is based on resources, is based on who is in power. Um, so in that sense, we have not made progress. Um, we have accepted more minority faculty per se in our programs, but they are in these contexts that those conversations are not as welcomed as they should be. So we learn to be more political. Is that, is that because um, minority stakeholders, or in this case faculty members, they're just not aware because uh, they are in the majority and when you're in the majority you're not aware? Why do you think we, we don't have more dialogues like that in 
you know, pretty liberal, open places like academ like academia and, and training programs? Well, I don't see him as in, in liberal, open. That's my lens, that um, we have the illusion of democracy more than it is really happening and those conversations are actually um, have, have, have get validated in, in faculty uh, meetings, in um, when, when people are making decisions about um, promotions and tenure, when we are thinking about what kinds of students we want in our programs, who writes good APA um, papers. Um, and, and so there are at so many levels, I've been in academicians for 22 two years and for, for the uh, other than one year um, I have been in the position of being a director and a decision maker and but I have been within the context of a bigger um, college in in and bigger discourses and all of those decision makings are still pretty traditional how do we let's think because you you know you have been an administrator, you've been a researcher, and you're, you're also a clinician and a, a trainer of clinicians. So if I am a MFT therapist in training or a young professional listening to this podcast, and maybe I am in the majority, maybe I don't know if I'm culturally aware, how, how do I improve my cultural competence? To me, cultural competency is not about having information about other cultures. Uh, knowing what is happening with family dynamics even, or how do they handle decision makings in their families. To me, cultural competency is, is about being open to understanding um, similarities and differences. I often tell when I do trainings, I say to people that if you can understand your um, significant other's family culture, if you can understand your colleagues um, uh, family culture uh, based on the information you have. Um, if you have that kind of lens, then you can do well with clients regardless of where they're coming from. If you have that sense of openness that I perhaps don't know as much as I think I know. Um, that to me, just, just kind of balancing similarities and differences because there are times that we need to go with similarities because we don't have a specific information. And there are times that we have to go with differences because our clients are expecting us to look at the situation from their lens. And it could be someone who actually looks like you and went to the same church that you Right, went. so you assume similarity uh, instead of uh, being curious or asking for differences or... I assume both. Right. I think we have to have a healthy balance of looking at where we are similar and where we are different and have the curiosity to think that we may not have the answer. I've always thought I'm a curious person by nature. It's probably why I like interviewing people and, and doing clinical work. So I've always thought the easiest way to do is when I don't know, uh, just ask. But I think young therapists, when they're starting, they don't want to, they want to build an alliance. They don't either want to seem uneducated or unprofessional. So they don't ask when really they should. And then that creates uh, big problems later on as far as far forming an alliance and, and doing the work. How do you work with young students that are uncomfortable about asking about differences if their client system looks very different from the way they were raised? So what I tell students is that before you can get comfortable with your client's social positions, you have to be comfortable with your own social positions. If you understand your gender, your ethnicity, um, your class, um, the, the, the way you grew up, even your attachment style has so much to do with how you carry yourself, and start the first session with mentioning some of those um, intersectionalities, you can actually create a much safer environment for your clients to be more forgiving um, of what you don't know. When I, I was, I believe the first international 
student that that um, uh, graduated from a co-amped accredited program in 1996 that I stayed in the U.S. and the context that I worked at was a white middle upper class clinic when I got my training and and so I had a supervisor that told me you don't owe any information to your clients in terms of who you are as a person because this is a professional setting and it's all about your clients and I had another uh, supervisor equally powerful both male white male that said no I think you owe your clients an explanation about who you are because you look different, you have an accent, you have a hijab it's, on. It's the elephant in the room. Absolutely. And so I went with his um, suggestion and, and started by explaining a little bit about myself and saying that even though I am not from the United States of America, I came here to, I, I started my education in the U.S. and I have some ideas about family dynamics in this culture based on my textbook knowledge. But I always said from the beginning that I will do one session and at the end of the session, you can decide if you want to continue with me or you would like me to refer you to another colleague that is, that is from this culture and may perhaps understand your challenges better. I think that's great because it allows them it, that space to, 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 uh, uh, to kind of understand but to show that you want to work with them. But I'm, I'm guessing many times that they stay with you and they don't opt out. <laughs> because that was a strategic move on my part. And people go, oh, no, I has nothing to do with you being Muslim or have a job. Or, no, no. And so they come back. And, and actually, it has been so incredibly helpful to, to um, talk about my um, perspectives about gender, perspective, my values about, for example, at this first session, if I'm working with couples, I say um, that I believe that if, if, if uh, couples have children, they have to try their best to get along and continue the relationship. That's a value. And we know, I mean, there used to be a time in the field and different orientations, including psychoanalytic theory that said you need to be a blank slate, that psychotherapy should be value-free, but that's not possible in the world we live in. And, and talk about how you help young students uh, and therapists in training to kind of own their own values. Because as you said, if you haven't really examined your own, you're not going to be able to do it uh, when a client asks you. Exactly. Yeah. And so that has been um, incredibly helpful and, and, and has created a very safe space for both myself and my clients to explore these issues, uh, working with a, uh, you know, uh, wealthy, white, conservative male who owns 41 guns and his wife is working with me. He joins us, um, asks me some questions about what I'm all about. And, and then later on, we engage in those kinds of conversations about, um, you know, gun control and, and and, um, you know, white male being in a position of power and, and actually creating um, much better dialogues um, that, that could be helpful even in, in, in the, within the context of his relationship with his wife. Um, that, you know, owning those many guns had so much to do with how he felt unsafe as a child. And his conservative perspectives is because he couldn't trust anyone and just one way of thinking have been helpful to him. I love uh, interviewing people for this podcast and hearing these personal stories, either from family of origin or clinical work, because it really brings home. So that's, that's a client on the surface that you would think would have a, not a very good fit um, from a therapist with your your cultural and ethnic background, but by opening that dialogue and creating that space, you tapped into something very primal in him. It's a very powerful experience, I can tell as you were talking about. What about the, the reverse of that? What about working with misogynist or bigoted clients and face, facing black backlash because of your ethnicity, because of your religion? How have you dealt with closed-minded people like that? Because there's plenty of those as well. Um. I, I have to share a story about uh, that is that is personal and professional and clinical. When 9/11 happened, um, you were in Minnesota. I was in Minnesota. 
I just came back from Iran 10 days before I was doing a research project in Iran, and my kids were with me. Um, and so when that day was a Tuesday morning, I was going to the clinic um, for a, uh, a meeting, and, and um, as I was driving, and I heard that what's going on. Um, I had my own personal reactions that I just traveled and I, I could have been coming from Washington or New York. So I had my own trauma of I could have been in one of those airplanes that, that hit the Twin Towers and how uh, scary that would have been. So I've been, I've, it was so raw that I was dealing with my own personal um, uh, uh, pain and trauma of what happens when you are in, in, in those kinds of situations. And so on Thursday, two days after, I had a client that I was working for uh, more than a year and uh, had, was dealing with anxiety issues about um, mid-50s, a white male. Uh, we had a very good relationship. And um, he had an appointment with me, and it was the first appointment after me being gone for a month. And I would always go to Iran in month of August because I could take time from the university. And so I went to the lobby to get him, and he started um, screaming and said, um, you are going to pay for this. And, and we came to the room, I closed the door, he said, You were scared? You, you never I, had a reaction like that before in all of your It was years the first of, time, yeah. yes, yes. And, and, and he said, I, I, when he said, you're going to pay for this, I, I thought he's talking about, you were gone for a month, I, I didn't know he's talking about 9-11, but when we sat down, he said, your whole, you know, Middle East is going to pay for this. Why would you travel um, at this time? Were you collaborating with him in Bed Laden? Was this something that you had something to do with it? I can see one of our missiles go to your father's, um, you know, your parents' living room and decapitate your father. We are going to, you know, um, take care of this. We are a very strong country. And, 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 and told me that you are going to be, I'm going to report you to FBI to be investigated. And um, continued 45 minutes just talking about that. And, and I listened and um, at, the, at the about 40 minutes into our conversation, as you remember, it was no, no fly zone. And uh, we, my office was in the 15th floor of a building right in front of Minneapolis airport. And uh, all of a sudden, an airplane takes off. And both of us stopped because it was going to be no-fly zone. And he said, an airplane. And I said, don't worry. They, NPR this morning talked about um, people in Minnesota donated blood. And so one airplane is going to leave Minneapolis airport and go to um, New York. So we bonded on that moment of both of us were worried about safety. And um, so I said, um, okay, uh, do I, am I going to see you next week at 4 o'clock? And he said, of course and walked out of my office. When he walked out, my colleagues and the receptionists all rushed into my room and said they could hear him, and they were worried about my safety and how loud he was and the kind of language he was using was pretty violent um, and directed at me and my personal family. And they said, why didn't you open the door? Why didn't you tell him that you're so inappropriate? Leave my office. And I said, because I, at that moment, I represented everything that he was so fearful of. It wasn't about me. It was about what he didn't know what to do. So he could go to people and go, guys, I saw one of them. One of them is my therapist. And that's how I viewed that conversation with him. Um, that I was representing something that, that was very painful and very raw, and he didn't have any other place than supposedly processing that with his therapist. So what I tell my students, I say, when, when if you're a white male and if a minority comes to you and talks about the struggles they have, if they feel safe enough, 
That means you are lucky that a minority client actually thinks that it's okay for me to talk about a painful experience. It's not about you per se, it's about what you represent. <clears throat> and if had you reacted in fear yourself, you would have confirmed his, his own fear. I mean, you, you being a container for that for him was hugely therapeutic. Now, did you, you my sense of, you, you know, your sense of self is very strong, you know who you are. Did you know that at the time or is that something that developed uh, later on, your ability to stay calm and and centered like that, even with someone who was very reactive and, and very afraid? I believe that I knew um, he wasn't talking about me per se, as personal as it was. And I knew that my reaction to him would have made it worse. Um, he did, by the way, report me to FBI. And FBI did contact me. And I told him later on in our in our work together um, that you know by the way thank you for for doing that. He said it was just my patriotic duty, and I said I get it. This is a um, this is much bigger than you and I. And so I have been able to maybe because of my family background because of how my dad was a. So wait, wait, you, you continue, that, that is amazing, you know, I'm a, an alliance uh, researcher, so when I think of a Terran alliance, reporting your therapist to the FBI would be a, a, a therapy killer for most situations, but because you understood him and you understood his fear, you continued to see him after that. Absolutely. Wow. We worked together. Wow. It's interesting for you to know that I wrote an article um, and published it in the Star Tribune news. Uh, letter. I mean, um, um, newspaper. Yes, yeah. <laughs> we don't Minnesota. Sure, sure. So then, um, he actually on a Sunday morning he was reading Star Tribune, um, and he said, "I see your name," and I tell my girlfriend, "Oh my God, this is my therapist." Um, and then he said, "I'm reading this, and I'm reading this, and all of a sudden I see myself. You're talking about me," and he said. As I read it, I thought, oh, is that what I did? So he said, I panicked. I called a, a lawyer and said, this is defamation. And he said, is, did, did he say anything about your age? Is your age right? He said, no. He said, any, any identifying information about who you are? And he said, I said, no. He said, okay, so you can't sue someone for defamation if there is no identifying information. The only person that knows is you because you were part of that conversation. So he brought this Star Tribune paper to a session and said, I was incredibly hurt by this being published at the same time, I saw myself from where you were sitting. And he was a, he was a very unsophisticated uh, man in terms of you know, his education, who he was. Um, and in being engaged in a, in a very good conversation about that, he said, I, I read it and I said, I did say all these things. And I didn't even put those graphic things that he said, just an overall perspective, that those of us, and my point was those of us that are from those countries also have experiences that this situation could have been triggering for. That's all I was I was trying to, to talk about. That is an amazing, powerful story. Um, when you think of what we need to do, Manager, to move the field forward as far as uh, cult cultural competence, both um, you know, from an educational perspective as far as training therapists and from a research perspective, how do we do that? How do we move the field forward so when we talk down the road, uh, we could be at a, a better place as far as cultural competency and marriage and family therapy? We have to um, start with this dialogue that as systemic thinkers, number one, number one issue in our field is that we claim to be systemic thinkers. But when it comes to other countries and other cultures and other interactions, we still come from very individualistic, one-directional perspective. If we want to move forward, we need to really 
as we talk to talk, walk to walk, and say, every context is different, every relationship is different. We really have to think bi-directional, stay with bi-directional perspectives, and only then, then, then we can actually look at cultural differences because I believe that every family is a mini culture in a way. And so I believe that we have to start from that. We have to start from self of the therapist talking about my position, my power, how I get have privileges in these contexts, different contexts, and how I deal with it. And then excuse me, we can move forward with making it a, a, um, uh, a more fair and um, just conversation um, in the field. Um, and so our conferences, um, making, we, we are more in this country about comfort. People be comfortable. Don't make him uncomfortable. Safe space. Um, we were doing a panel at NCFR, and a new assistant professor, faculty, African American faculty, said when she teaches diversity courses, safe space for white students means a very triggering space for a, a minority faculty. And that was very powerful for me because I was the only full professor in a panel of all these young assistant professors and thinking that is absolutely right. I just, I have been a little bit more resilient and I haven't taken it as personally, but my gosh, it's absolutely right. When we tell the students, tell me anything you wanna tell me and how they take that space and they literally tell you how they think and how that impacts us. And so I would like to go to my colleague at least afterward and debrief without thinking he's not gonna get it either because he also is comfortable in that safe space and says, well, you told them it's a safe space, then why can't you deal with what they say? So as you were saying earlier, just before we can have these dialogues with our clients, we have to have these dialogues with our colleagues, with our students, with our family members. And uh, in our field. And, yes, and in our field, at our conferences. Field. Uh, uh, and in, how does that look in a, in a research? Because you know, you, you part of your career has been in mm -hmm. this advocacy on this larger level, but as far as how this is reflected in research agendas, what should it look like? So it, it should, we should do more, include more minorities in research. We should accept more minority students in our programs and mentor them to work with their minority groups. We shouldn't worry as much about the quality of APA papers um, that are good but doesn't have much content in terms of where we need to go. Um, as a system-wide director, I am trying to um, have professors mentor more um, students at master and doctoral level, especially doctoral level. At master's level, they say, okay, I can train practitioners. They're gonna go out there and they work with their communities. But when it comes to doctoral students, they say, well, he's not a doctoral student material. What, why? Let's mentor him. It's easy to have a student that has gone to private school um, and, and has good grasp of how to write good papers, but it's very difficult to literally change every sentence in somebody's uh, paper, but then mentor them and say, this is what I need you to do in the field. That's the only way we can change um, the discourse we have, because it's very superficial, uh, it's very white male dominated perspective. We do not take um, cultural, uh, social, um, uh, female perspective positions. Um, we don't incorporate that into our conversations. And many of us are not um, um, sophisticated enough or articulate enough to talk about our struggles. So we just go through these motions of getting tenure and then becoming maybe full professor, but then losing our soul, uh, selling our soul along the way to fit in. So we look like minorities, but our hearts and souls are sold completely to only be in um, 
you know, at the table, but not necessarily part of the tough conversations that need to happen. Yeah. Let's go full circle here. What does your father think about all the things you have accomplished in your career as regards to this cultural competency? Just before the last time I visited him, two months before he passed away, I was there for five days and, and we were talking about um, uh, social justice and what happens. Um, he always stood by um, <coughs> his perspective about how there are so many people that don't have voices. And if we have a little bit of power, we have to actually um, use that um, to be the voice of, of the voiceless in any context, in any situations. And so even when I go back home for a visit, when people have misconceptions um, about people, I engage in those kinds of conversations with them. And, and my mom says, you come for three weeks and you're constantly fighting with people. Um, they haven't seen you for a year. You come to reconnect with cousins and aunts and uncles, but you know they say something and you jump on it and you have. And I say, that's what I do in the United States and, and that's not even my country of origin. I, I can, the least I can do is to do it for three weeks so I could be my authentic self and be true to my um, growing up years and how my, my, my father believed that we should be in the society. I mean, five days going back home to him when he was sick, I called him, I said, I'm coming to visit you. Two times before that, he said, if that takes you away from the good work you're doing in the community and at the university, I'm still the same person, nothing has changed, don't come. So the last two times I visited him, I didn't even tell him. I went for four days because I knew and, and it's a two-day travel yeah, for four right. days, but I wanted, I wanted to, and I said, see that? I came only for four days because I really needed to see you. And that's an important part of my work because I'm a family therapist. And so that I have to be very true to myself and say my connections to my family um, are very important to me as well as my professional work. Um, but that social justice lens about fairness, about looking at how to use our power in different contexts um, are his legacy, and I really hope to continue that legacy uh, for years to come, and I hope my children will continue that legacy as well. I have two daughters. One is um, 32 years old and is an oncologist, and I have an 18-year-old. Um, and they, spread. it is yeah. 15 years yes. is flat, and they are, both so highly um, engaged in social justice work um, in, in different contexts. Uh, she does it at the university setting, um, my older one does it at the hospital setting, um, engaging in conversations because science, women in science, which my father was very proud of my daughter to going towards science and become a medical doctor, um, and really encouraged her to stay there, but she actually talks about um, gender, uh, power within the scientific community and how much men are in control in the medical field and how in this day and age still women are viewed as kind of nurses even though they have the same degrees as their male colleagues and so she engages in that conversation and my um, younger one actually is the vice president at the at her university of students um, uh, government and she actually does um, brings uh, that conversation invites people who are talking about social justice to the university and they both say uh, we got it from you damn you uh, we don't enjoy our it's, it's, a, it's a part of us now. Exactly. Yes, exactly. and it is true. When, once you identify in this way, and once you have this sense of social justice, it's it it's it's integrated into your whole being, both in your personal life and your professional life as a therapist, as an academic. It's there. Wow, I've learned so much. Um, <clears throat> talk to our listeners. Uh, tell them about your book, and if they want to find more, maybe send you a message and correspond with you. Uh, how could they do that? Um, so I love 
MFT theories. I connect with all of them really well. And as I said, I can make all of them look uh, pretty good um, in terms of our application of their models. And so because I am Muslim and I come from a, a Middle Eastern context, that has been part of my identity. And so I decided I'm not um, in terms of the religious perspective, because when you write a book called um, Family Therapy with Muslims, it's such an overgeneralization. It's like having a book called Muslim, I mean, um, Family Therapy with Christians. How do you do that? I wanted to um, look at Muslims as a social group, not necessarily as a religious group, but there was no other way to um, give people some ideas about what this group is all about other than grossly overgeneralizing and, and, and kind of introducing the idea to the field um, and introducing um, the, the, the top, you know, using, so what I've done in my book, I have used all classic and postmodern um, um, theories, thank you, and applied them. I explained them in terms of family dynamics of collectivistic cultures, because Muslims are, you know, embedded in collectivistic cultures, and then have a case um, uh, uh, example um, to show how that model could, can be used with this population. And many people that have bought my book um, say, well, I read your um, uh, feminist family therapy chapter, and I read your example, and I think I'll do this in my work as a feminist with my uh, you know, uh, majority culture clients. And I said, that's actually my point. I want to show that you can use feminist family therapy lens to work with this population. Right, not just with minority clients, right. Exactly. You can use, you can talk about sexual abuse, you can challenge patriarchal perspective within the family in the therapy session, because I believe that patriarchy is something that is way well and alive in this culture and every other culture globally. It's just that in the United States, we think of ourselves as better than others. And so we say those patriarchal cultures. So by, by putting this, this book together, I was trying to really start the conversation just to start the conversation and say, hey, let's look at people and their pain as opposed to their sexual orientation or their religious orientations or their culture of origin um, and, and, and kind of see how we have to be theory-based in the work that we do because without it, we don't have a lens that can help us, ground us, actually shape our perspectives. I tell my students that you're going to look really smart in front of your clients if you are theory-based. When they ask you these days, people say, why do you suggest it? How come you talked about this? And if you're a theory-based, then you can actually talk about that. So that was my, um, uh, basically, uh, hope and dream to um, uh, bring that conversation to our field and encourage people that teach multicultural classes, um, people in other parts of the world that work with Muslim uh, refugees and immigrants in Australia, English-speaking countries, they can actually use that book to have a little bit of knowledge because I spent um, a big chapter talking about um, family context in many different countries in the Middle East. Of course, I couldn't have covered all of them, but just to give a little synopsis of of this is this is what's going on little bit for them to understand it and I know I had I had graduate assistants that were helping me gather information as I was writing the book and one of them um, said that wow um, it, I'm from my lens um, it it uh, actually uh, helps me with my stereotypes I said if you have that lens there is nothing I can do if you want to look at him, it's like they say that if you are a liberal, you look at things from the liberal lens. If you're a conservative, you're going to look at everything from conservative lens. And so there is nothing I can do about that. That's about your upbringing, your intersectionality. But I tried my best to um, uh, start a um, 
new conversation and introduce some new ideas to the field. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation this, this afternoon. I wish, um, uh, thank you so much for being part of this, and I appreciate you sharing your passions, your very personal stories of both your family of origin, those great clinical stories, and, and your wisdom. And I hope uh, to continue the dialogue. Thank you so much, Amanda Jay, for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me. And so concludes another great interview on the AAMFT podcast. Again, much thanks to Amanda Jay Danishpour. I learned a ton. Those were some great stories, especially about her post 9-11 client and what it's like growing up as a girl in an all-boys school. Really powerful stories. She's a very friendly. You ever see her at AMFT conference? Um, go up, uh, say hi, introduce yourself. Another thing for, for people that want to continue to know more, as I mentioned at the top of the show, obviously you can join us at a national conference, which happens once a year. But if you want to do a deeper dive and, and do more and you still need CEUs, AMFT has you covered. So if you liked what you heard from Manage, uh, you can find her on Tenio. And currently, and Tenio again is the online CEU system from AAMFT. Uh, and those CEUs, because they come from the AMFT, are approved by any state MFT licensing board. And right now there's three great offerings, and usually Tenio recordings are taken from past conferences. So three great offerings with Manage. Um, there's one called Cultural Neuroscience, Child and Adolescent Brain Development, and that is a two-hour course. There's another offering entitled Whose Cross-Cultural Competency Is It Anyway? Uh, and a final one entitled Why Should Therapists Talk About Race, Gender, and Class? That's where Manage uh, will discuss the impact of power and relational dynamics with clients and evaluating ethics, uh, talking about the clinical implications for covering or not covering some of these topics, and some case examples with specific recommendations for culturally relevant assessment, treatment, and training are provided. And if you can't come face-to-face at one of these conferences, the best thing to do is check it out through Tenio. You can learn something and get your CEUs at the same time. As always, we love hearing from you on the podcast. Many of our themes and guests that we interview come directly from listener feedback. The best way to get a hold of us is communications at aamft.org. That's the email. Also follow us on Twitter, which is at the AMFT. You can also follow me at Dr. Eli Live on Twitter. The hashtag for our conference coming up, as I mentioned, is AAMFT19. So following that hashtag, before, during, and after the conference, we'll keep you plugged in. Until next time, stay systemic, my friends.